Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to wish everybody a happy and healthy holiday season. I know these are uncertain times. I know you might have a lot of tough conversations, but just know you can always find what you need here at the Lincoln Project, lincolnproject.us. I hope you'll share what we're doing. I hope you'll share this podcast. And again, I hope you enjoy your time with friends and family. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Heather Cox Richardson, author, historian, and history professor at Boston College. Heather is an expert in 19th century America, specializing in politics and economics, and has authored numerous books. Her latest is Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America, a New York Times bestseller, and is available wherever fine books are sold. Heather is also the co-host of the Now and Then podcast and writes daily for her blockbuster substack, Letters from an American. Heather, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so I want to start light and then we can get heavy. What is it like as an author to be sitting in your cabin, in your apartment, wherever it is, and watching the evening news over Thanksgiving and seeing the president of the United States walk out of a bookstore with his book under your arm? Well, you know, it was a funny thing because my family is on occasion somewhat nerdy, and we actually have a Thanksgiving tradition where we do what's called sip and learn, and people have seven minutes to do a presentation on something that they're really interested in that may or may not have anything to do with their day jobs. And one of my nephews is a photographer, so he was literally doing a sip and learn on AI when people started sending me that image. And I was like, wow, he was really thorough. Look, he photoshopped my book in the president's hands and he's gotten people to send it to me while he's doing this presentation on AI. And I'm thinking he was really very thorough for such an event like a sip and learn. And the third time somebody sent it to me and I realized it wasn't somebody I knew, I was like, oh, wow, it wasn't photoshopped. And then there was sort of this like, I don't know, it's a really weird feeling, but it's a good one for sure. Right. So before we go on, because now you've piqued my interest, tell me what's the genesis of Sip and Learn and how do you get people to participate? How did you convince family members? I think it's a fabulous idea. So I'm going to try and take it home. I'm not sure I'll be successful, but how did you convince folks to do that? Look, okay, it wasn't me doing the convincing, I promise you, but it came from our children. Apparently, there's a drinking game along those lines. I don't know what's going on with that, <laughs> but they imported it to Thanksgiving a few years ago, and it's so much fun It because you just, you know, your, your family members and friends, because lots of people get involved, have a lot of cool interests that you don't know about. So we've done how to arrange flowers. What's the chemical way that fire actually works? Obviously, the photographer does great stuff every year. This year, somebody did a long presentation on funding higher education. So, you know, what's a FAFSA form and how do you fill those things out? And somebody else did how to cook mushrooms. I mean, it's actually just a great deal of fun. I don't think any of us would give it up. Oh, that's very cool. That's very cool. Okay. Well, I sip and learn here today. So let's talk a little bit about your work, American history, the state of American democracy. Before we talk about your new book, I want to talk about the book that I candidly have not read, but I read about this morning called To Make Men Free. Came out in 2014, almost 10 years ago, about a history of the Republican Party. Let me ask you, a decade on from its release, was everything that you wrote in the book, did you have to throw it all out? 
in the last 10 years? No, actually, it's really interesting because when that book came out in 2014, it was September of 2014, the book identified a tension in United States history between, on the one hand, protection of property, and on the other hand, the idea of investing in people starting out and giving them access to resources and education and so on with the idea that it would create an upwardly mobile population that would produce more than it could consume and it would therefore employ people at the next level up who would be shopkeepers and you know cobblers and professions like that and they in turn would produce more than they could consume and would keep a very few industrialists for example in an ability to expand their industries and in turn hire people at the bottom. So it was very much on the one hand, this idea of protecting property in which the pendulum would swing toward the idea that any kind of government that helped individuals or helped ordinary people was by the 1870s called a form of socialism, and that it would swing back to the idea that, in fact, the government should protect ordinary Americans. And that was the history of the Republican Party, really, since it began in the 1850s. And so, you know, I, I did this pendulum swing through three different swings. And at the end of the book basically said, the Republican Party is once again on its protection of private property swing toward oligarchy, as it did in the 1850s, as it did in the 1890s, as it did in the 1920s. And if it doesn't get its act together and swing back the way it always has, it's got itself a real problem. So when that book came out, it was not well received especially among Republicans. They felt that I was a lefty, that I was, you know, I had attacked them unfairly. And I mean, on and on and on. You can look at the reviews and at the interviews I did. And then in 2000, and I guess it was 21, they brought out a new edition with a new afterword. And, you know, basically all I could say is I was far too kind because I really expected because of the party's history, it would find itself a Theodore Roosevelt. It would find itself an Eisenhower. It would find somebody to bring it back from the brink of what the time I thought was oligarchy, but obviously now has turned into authoritarianism. And that it would rebuild itself because I think that ideology that it embraces at its best is part of America's DNA. So, you know, here I was saying, you guys better get your act together because now's the time to find your roots again. And I got lambasted for that. And instead, they just jumped off that cliff and, you know, are working on taking the rest of us down. And interestingly enough, I have not had, I don't think, any pushback on that new afterward I wrote, basically saying, whoop, they did it. Well, in another couple of years, they might say that the afterword also wasn't strong enough. But let me ask you this in the context of where the Republican Party is now. Now, I, you know, I grew up in the party, right? My dad worked on Capitol Hill. I worked on Republican campaigns for many years. The makeup of the party now seems to be one of almost a barbell or a dumbbell, maybe is a better expression, which is you have oligarchs on one side and the hyper populist, angry individuals on the other. I think that's right. And, you know, the way we got to that point is fascinating. And, of course, one of the hallmarks of the Trump rise to power and then the presidency was that it empowered the populist side of the equation and not the oligarchs who expected to be able to control those populists. But I think, interestingly enough, in that switch, you've also seen an important switch in the ideology of the party that is the whole Reagan free markets cut the social safety net, concentrate wealth at the top so that people will invest in production at the bottom, which there, you know, there really was an idea. Well, I guess I don't have to tell you there was an ideology to the Reagan Republicans. That's gone by the wayside. And instead, we have this real marriage of that 
far right of the Republican Party to the kinds of ideology that people like Viktor Orban call illiberal democracy. And he also sometimes calls it Christian democracy, although it's not the same as the Christian Democrat parties in Europe. The idea of a strong government that forces religious values on the population. And you see that, for example, in Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's LGBTQ laws, the many ways in which he has tried to force companies like Disney or like the cruise ship lines to adhere to his policies as opposed to markets is a really big switch. So there's a real question, I think, about whether those oligarchs are going to cede control of that party to the populists because the populist plans are actually not good for the economy and they're not good for people who are trying to concentrate wealth because they're so idiosyncratic depending on which flavor of Christianity you're imposing that week. So, you know, right now I'm watching really carefully to see which way oligarchs jump. And as you know, in the last few weeks, they have been jumping away from Trump to Nikki Haley, who's a much more reliable sort of friend of American oligarchs, as opposed to the populists who are pretty reliably now friends of Russian oligarchs. Let me ask you about that, because I was asking someone last night, and I, I didn't ask the right question, as you know, Heather, which is often the mo more important part to get the right answer you want, is whether or not those oligarchs, the hyper wealthy, you know, clustered largely in New York, but in places like Dallas, Texas or Los Angeles, where Chicago, wherever they might be, is do you think that there is a belief, one, that they still can control, which is a very sort of like Franz von Poppen theory of the case? Or do you believe that at the end of the day, a guy like Donald Trump is ultimately transactional? And if they got to pay somebody to do something, they can just pay it off because they got so much. Money. They're masters of the universe anyway. So I don't have any special insight into the vision of American oligarchs. I just don't. I don't hang with those people. I'm certainly not one of them. So a little bit what you have to do, I think, is guess what they're thinking based on their actions. And, you know, one of the things that has been really interesting to watch, I think, is the reaction of Senate Republicans to the extremism of the current House Republicans. And, you know, you'll notice they went to ground for a long time after the Republicans took the House of Representatives in 2023, sort of keeping their mouths shut. And it didn't help, of course, that um, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell from Kentucky has had real health problems. But one of the things that has happened with the attempt on the part of the Biden administration to increase funding for Ukraine is that you've seen people like Mitch McConnell sort of come out of the woodwork and back the Republicans, back the House Republicans who want to force immigration measures into that supplemental bill. And, you know, the question is, is McConnell doing that because he is afraid he's going to lose control of the Republican Party? Or is he doing it because he thinks that immigration will give the Republicans at least something to fight back against the abortion issue, which is killing Republicans ever since the passage of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health? Or is he simply hoping that he can pull enough out of the fire in 2024 that even if the Republicans lose the House and lose the presidency, that they can hold the Senate? And he can therefore make sure that I think what they're really concerned about is the fact that, you know, personally, I think that the people who are saying we must do something about the budget deficit are correct. I know not everybody thinks that. I personally think that something needs to be done on that front with rising interest rates. And I think they're very concerned about Biden's promise to raise taxes on the very wealthy and on corporations. 
So if they can at least create enough chaos that they hold the Senate, it will make sure that they don't lose control of the party to the base, which is working, again, really for people like Vladimir Putin right now, and they won't lose control of the Senate so they can stop higher taxes on corporations and on them. And then they can just hold on for 2028 and hope that they get an American oligarch back in power. It's a hell of a game. Well, I was going to say you've just demonstrated, you know, hexagonal chess or something. Right. And that's my question is, you know, you noted all these, you know, many of these people are now getting behind Nikki Haley. You know, some are sitting out Trump in 2024. But I guess my question would be, and again, accepting what you've said about not hanging out with oligarchs, but putting your historian's hat on that I think you wear quite a lot, which is don't they understand that like if the whole thing comes crashing down because someone like a Donald Trump retakes power and does 20 percent of the things he or his people have promised that really everything is maybe not forfeit, but it's certainly, you know, the land of the arbitrary. I think some of them do. Certainly somebody like Mitch McConnell recognizes that if we lose the rule of law and if we lose the international rules based order, which is also very important, that you can't protect international businesses and you certainly can't protect businesses at home. I think the people who are really paying attention to, you know, what you call the hexagonal chess of politics understands that because, you know, Americans take for granted that since World War II, the rules based international order has protected trade. In a huge way, aside from all the the wars that it appears to have prevented, certainly we've had regional wars, but we haven't had world wars caused by countries deciding that they can simply take over their neighbors the way we had in, in the 1930s. And before that, those things have been such a constant that I think most people don't realize how important they are. You know, they just think that's the way the world is. But if you, in fact, are doing business all over the world, you recognize that you have to be able to protect shipping, for example. You have to have, you know, the ability for your goods to move and you have to have some kind of way to resolve international disputes. Somebody like McConnell, I think, sees that. But the new factor in these arguments that was not part of the 1890s, for example, or even the 1920s, although there were glimmers of it, is the rise of Christian nationalism. So if you get an oligarch, somebody who's extraordinarily wealthy and who truly believes that they are doing God's will as they interpret it and that God will sort everything out, I think they're not approaching these questions rationally. They're certainly not approaching them in a secular way. And you can see them saying, well, you know, I'm just going to do what I think God wants, and God will figure it out. And you see that, for example, in people like the DeVos family and the Prince family from which Betsy DeVos comes, you know, the idea that, you know, even though Eric Prince is now in trouble for his actions with, I believe, the way he was selling weapons, you know, they clearly are fervent evangelical Christians who believe they're doing God's will. And what do you do with that? I mean, you know, the, the history of the United States and Europeans on this continent believing that so long as they were doing God's will, they could do whatever they want, goes pretty deep and has always been extraordinarily destructive. So that's something new. People who have billions of dollars, billions of dollars to determine the future based on what they interpret to be God's will is new and I think very frightening. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, 
all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. John Ward, who's a fabulous writer for Yahoo News and a grew up evangelical, considers himself an evangelical, says, when you now believe that you have the power of the supernatural on your side, Heather, right, you're willing to do almost anything, right, because you literally believe you have the power of the universe at your back. And anything you do, therefore, to your point, is with the ascent and blessing, literally, of a higher power, which really sort of in its worst form, I think, Heather, lays everything else bare because now, you know, the Constitution is a great document, but it becomes, you know, an old piece of paper sitting in a building in Washington, D.C., because now it's like, well, you've got your old piece of paper, but I've got my old book, right? My old book trumps your old piece of paper. So I have a question for you. I agree with that. And I have a question for you that I've always wondered about for people who were working in the Republican Party after 1981. Did you not see for real what even Reagan, but certainly George W. Bush was up to with the concentration of power and with his rhetorical attacks on women and people of color? Was that like just a, I mean, those of us who study it recognize those things partly as a dog whistle to get the voters behind them. And, you know, the Reagan administration was very clear about what they were doing. And to some degree, so was the George W. Bush administration. But we also recognized that it was tapping into a longstanding American resentment of the other. And many of us were told, as I was after I published that book in 2014, that I was just some crazy lefty. And I used to be sitting there thinking, you know, really? Me? You know, Take a look. <laughs> I would say this, and I say this with no pride. I think it was opaque. I think it was opaque. I mean, you know, personally, I started working for George W. Bush in 1997 when I was in college and he was a first term governor. And so to me, you know, he was many, many people who get are lucky enough to work at the national level in politics. They have their person, the person that they worked for first, who became their guy, for lack of a better way to put it. And for me, that was George W. Bush. And a lot of that changed. You know, the 2000 campaign was a fight between, you know, what we saw as the inherent goodness of a guy like George W. Bush, who, you know, swept to reelection in 1998 with, you know, a massive win in a state, not only amongst white voters, but also did very well amongst Latinos. And that, you know, was going against the years of the Clintons. And again, remember, this is a moment in time. And then obviously you have 9-11 and the whole calculus of everything changed. And then you go to the reelection campaign and it's like being in church, right? Like you're a true believer. You're sitting in the campaign headquarters. You do everything you figure out you can do. And this is especially true of Republicans. It's an ethos more than an ideology, which is Republican campaign people. When you come up, it's just win, baby. It's the Al Davis ethos. Democrats don't have that. Republicans will say, OK, just win, baby. And his George W.'s father once said politics ain't beanbag. Right. So whatever was within the rules of the game was fair game. John Kerry on a win, you know, a windsurfing, saying I actually voted before it, before I voted after it, or, you know, I voted for it before I, you know, before I voted against it. All of those things fed into a theory of the case about John Kerry, which was he was feckless, right? You know, he he went up there and he did, you know, reporting for duty, and it just sort of fed into the like it was sort of goofy, and it was a national security election, right? Who's going to keep you safe? 
this guy who's been keeping you safe and killing bad guys or that guy who threw his medals over the wall? You know, a lot of this stuff, as you know, there are many facets of it, but gets fairly simplified fairly early. And, you know, after that, I just recall once President Bush giving a speech in the Rose Garden, and it might have been 0304, I'm not exactly sure when, but it was about putting a merit, sanctity of marriage amendment in the Constitution. And I always got the sense, and this is maybe, you know, a little counter to what you're asking, was I always got the sense that he like didn't really believe it. Like somebody, whether it was Rove or whoever said, like, you've got to go do this to keep the evangelicals on board. But you could tell like his heart wasn't in it. Of all the things he had to worry about or the things that he was really going to put on the line, like this is one that like said, you got to go read this. And, and then he left. But I would say also to answer another specific question, you'd sit in campaign meetings and there'd be one guy, right? One guy who was the he was the connection to the evangelical community. He had the weird high and tight haircut, the great same gray suit, the same white shirt, the same red tie and the crazy look in his eye. And he was there every day and he wore the same exact thing and the big clunky black shoes. And we all thought he was weird and nobody wanted to hang out with him. But here was the mistake we made, Heather. We thought he was in there with us. We were too arrogant to understand that we were in there with him and they just hadn't found their moment yet. And I think from my perspective, if luck is the definition of preparation meets opportunity, then Donald Trump was that lucky moment for that guy and his people, if that makes sense. It does. I mean, you can see and, and how we got to Donald Trump, I think, is really interesting in part by the fact that the Republican primaries and caucuses are lined up in such a way that they begin in low information states. So, of course, people with name recognition have a huge leg up. And of course, Trump comes in from outside with far more name recognition than Jeb Bush does. But to go back to what you're talking about in the George W. Bush administration and what it was like to be part of that as a young man, I mean, what I am hearing is the idea of a very carefully controlled, very simple narrative, which was not part of the Republican Party in the 1950s. Eisenhower, for example, spoke out really strongly against that, said we cannot have that because that will destroy democracy. And you're talking about that national security election. It was about who's going to keep you safe, George W. Bush or, you know, that feckless guy over there. But as somebody who was part of it, didn't you look and say, wait a minute, 9-11 happened on his watch? I mean, look at what's happening in Israel where Netanyahu's on the ropes because he missed something that looks very similar to 9-11. Again, I think this is the when I use the word benefit, please understand, I don't mean it like in the positive, but in the context of me being 25 right? When that happened and being in Tokyo, Japan with the Treasury Secretary on 9-11, right? And flying a C-5 cargo plane back across the Pacific. The point was, we were now part of something bigger than ourselves. And I was talking to somebody earlier about this. I grew up as a Republican in the Cold War, right? And I wrote about this the other day. Whether it's true or not, right? I grew up in a Republican household, I should say. What state? I, in Northern Virginia, right okay. side of Washington, D.C. And my parents were both either political appointees or worked on Capitol Hill, whatever it was. And when the movie Red Dawn came out. 1984. Right, yeah. 1984. I was eight. Right. But I wanted to be a Wolverine. If I could have been Patrick Swayze or Charlie Sheen or C. Thomas Howell living in the mountains, killing commies like that was a dream. Right. And that's what it was like to be a Republican in Reagan's America. And you fast forward to 9-11, some of those roots still remain. 
America was the shining city on the hill. We are the good guys. They are the bad guys. We hadn't had a bad guy in a while, right? The Clinton Pax Americana. It gave us something to unite around and the country, albeit briefly, was united. And so I'll tell you this, and this is why it's hard for me to be objective because I wasn't objective at the time, but I can give you my perspective was I was an advanced man, right? So I went all over the country and all over the world with the president. Wherever we went in those months after 9-11, the motorcade route, wherever we were going, George W. Bush was hailed as a conquering hero. People cheered wildly when they saw the beast rolling down the road, right? And so when you're sitting in the lead car, one car in front of the spare limousine, and you see that, you believe what I'm doing is right. Admittedly, I'm setting up stages and getting crowds to the right place. Okay, so let's take it for what it was. But you think I'm doing the right thing. I am part of the good guys. I am part of the force that America presents to the world as good versus evil, if that makes sense. So how do you think you lost the far right that we currently have? Do you think it was just over religion? Um, I think it was part of it. So let me fast forward to, you know, a more practical political thing. Let's say right around the time that your other book was coming out, your book about the GOP was coming out. If you did focus groups, okay, with Republican voters, and you showed a picture of Nancy Pelosi, boo hiss, boo hiss, Barack Obama, little louder boos, little louder hisses. Show a picture of Mitch McConnell. They're throwing stuff at the screen. Show a picture of Paul Ryan or John Boehner. They're throwing stuff at the screen. Like they knew what we know now, which is to your point, they are the oligarchs representatives in Washington, D.C. They were very clear about that. Very, very clear about that, which is why I think you saw maybe it was the Tea Party in 2009, 2010. I'm sure you've got all the warning signs lined up more practically and eloquently than I ever will. But that should have been a warning sign, but they were too arrogant to see it. And what had happened was that all of those angry white guys knew that, you know, these people didn't care about him. And maybe Mitt Romney was OK, but, you know, Romney was like, did you ever watch the, sh the show Chernobyl? I've heard it's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Craig Mazin, HBO, fabulous. But after massive radiation poisoning, there's a latency. So you get sick and then it looks like you're getting better. And then you get sick and ultimately die because you've had this massive dose of radiation. And I think that like Mitt Romney was that latency. Does that make sense? Which was we should have recognized the infection in 2009, 2010, maybe even going back to Sarah Palin. We thought we were OK with Mitt Romney. Right. And then everything went downhill. Well, so you're identifying the infection, if you will, of this Christian nationalism, which is prompted not only by the need for the Republican Party to have those voters on their team because they don't have the demographics otherwise. It's also really fed by the homeschooling movement, which people always like me to identify the fact that there's different kinds of homeschooling. But the Christian homeschooling movement really has fed the extreme right wing. And we know that they're the people who turn out in huge numbers now for Donald Trump and who are really sort of the base of his what is now essentially a cult. But one of the things that you are not identifying that I think matters so much is the use of language that really since William F. Buckley Jr. articulated it in 1951, there has been a concerted effort on the part of extremists and the extremists who then bled into the Republican Party to identify the Democrats or people who stand against the Republicans as the enemy. And you see that when during Nixon's administration, when 
speechwriter Pat Buchanan quite deliberately talks about polarizing the people. And Spiro Agnew, Nixon's vice president, talks about positive polarization. If we can only convince our voters that the other guys are socialists, are anti-family, are you know going to destroy America, we'll be able to call them to us. And the reason that I make that point is because, first of all, it sounds as if that was very much a part of the George W. Bush administration, as it has been identified in uh, Ron Suskind's book about that administration, the one that gives us that wonderful line about how the administration no longer has to live in a reality-based community, that it is an empire and it can make its own reality, and the rest of us are simply going to have to catch up. But when we talk about going forward into 2024, one of the things that really concerns me and one of the things that I think the Lincoln Project has been very good about is the fact that many people who are opposed to the re-empowerment of Donald Trump or a Donald Trump-like figure continue simply to push back against that narrative. And pushing back against that narrative is, of course, incredibly important, but accepting it as the basis of our political discussion, in fact, I think traps us in that same framework. And one of the reasons that I was suggesting that the language really mattered and what you were hearing really mattered is that when you're talking about in the that administration going around the world and having people turn out to cheer on the American president, well, that's nothing new to the George W. Bush administration. Of course, you think of somebody like Eisenhower. I'm picking on him here because he was a Republican. But certainly, you know, Joe Biden now, look at him. He goes around the world and, and people are, you know, out in the streets screaming. Kamala Harris, same thing, by the way. Her tours have been very popular. It doesn't get any press in the United States. But one of the things that I'm trying to really do is reframe the way we talk about the United States. So I really think knowing a bunch of still committed Trump voters that what they want is to believe that they matter and that they matter for something bigger than themselves. And the idea of attacking America really makes them angry. And if we could construct a new way of saying, you know, America is still great, but it's great not because of its enemies. It's great because it is a multicultural democracy that protects the rule of law, which is precisely what they did after World War II. This is when you've got Frank Sinatra doing his In This House film at the time about, you know, how all religions are welcome in America. This is when you have Superman defending all religions in the country. This is when you have presidents and leaders of both parties defending civil rights, not only of black Americans, but also of brown Americans. I mean, it seems to me that that language and that history is there to never completely diffuse those people who have been lost to the Trump cult. But to remind people who are still on the fence that we have a historical way of looking at this world that has been both empowering and ultimately extraordinarily prosperous for those people who embraced it. And it seems to me that one of the projects that I'm engaged in, and I think possibly the Lincoln Project is engaged in, is not simply to fight back against the poison of the past 40 years, but to say, Let's recognize that there is this poison in the American bloodstream, and let's work not simply to excise that poison, but to rebuild a much healthier diet that in the past has served us very well. No, look, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, I guess we were, I don't know if the word's lucky, I don't know what the right word is, Heather, but people would say to us in 2020, or even in 21 and 22, okay, what comes next? And I never really had a good answer for them because in our heart of hearts, and I call us, you know, the your friendly neighborhood Cassandra's, we always knew Trump was going to come back. 
So beating him once was not going to be beating him finally, at least from our perspective. And, and unfortunately, we've turned out to be right. So I never had a good answer for what comes next. But to me, and I've said this to my friends who are like me, late 40s, white guys, right? Upper income, educated, you name it. I know you don't like Joe Biden. And I know you really don't like Donald Trump. But let me just tell you, like the world you want doesn't come with more Donald Trump. The world you want might take a couple of years with Joe Biden. But I promise you this, Donald Trump equals you worrying about all sorts of things you've never worried about before. And Joe Biden means us determining what we want the country to look like in this next epoch. Because just to give you a sense, so years ago, well, not years ago, let's say 2018, 2019, I'm at a meeting of a bunch of, we didn't call ourselves the pro-democracy movement yet because we hadn't codified it. It's really not codified now. But somebody said, well, you know, in the post-war era, and I said, with all due respect, like the war ended 70 years ago, <laughs> right? Like my grandparents, all of them fought in the war, worked on the war, like they're all gone, right? Like, you know, my parents understand, you know, what it was like to be maybe, you know, they were born at the end of the war, right? They're boomers. But like the post-war era, what does that mean, right? And so now I feel like we're in this interregnum of where are we going to go next? And I think you're absolutely right about that, which is even for the older, white, probably more conservative voters. And, you know, we talked a, bit, a little bit about this before we went on the air is what am I going to do now to make sure it's either my kids or my grandkids have some world that maybe I don't recognize, but at least approximates the opportunities I had. We are multicultural. We are multi-ethnic. We are multi-faith. Those are not bad things, right? But it's different for a lot of people who had it easy, relatively speaking. Not that anybody's ever had anything necessarily easy, but the way we understand the world has changed. I mean, look, I have, you know, kids under the age of 15. They see the world. First of all, they're more informed at those ages than I ever could have hoped to have been at that age. But also they see the world in a completely different way. Not 20 degrees or 45 degrees, or, you know, 90 to 180 degrees from us. So, you know, talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, what you were thinking, because you asked who listens to the podcast. And I said they tend to be older. They tend to be white, more women than men. So talk to us a little bit about how you see this sort of forming political movement. Well, so first of all, I will. But to go back to the next generation, this is something that concerns me a great deal. And it concerns me again, first of all, because I do not think Americans recognize that the things they take for granted can indeed be taken away. Since the 1930s, we've had a government that regulated business, protected a basic social safety net, gave us social security, later on gave us Medicare and Medicaid and so on, promoted infrastructure and protected civil rights. And people just assume that that is going to continue. And every time another piece of it gets stripped away, they're horrified, but it could all go. And what is underneath all of that going is, of course, the idea of the rule of law in the United States. And I'm one of the people who is just adamant, not only that former President Trump needs to face the legal system, but that it's not okay when Law enforcement officers take into their own hands the role of judge and jury. You know, I don't care if the people that they are injuring in arrests are guilty or not guilty. 
I care that the system actually holds and that attacks our system just as much as Donald Trump getting away with anything. So I think we're in, in danger of losing the rule of law at home. But then again, I worry so terribly about the loss of the rules-based international order. And, you know, that's a place where a lot of people on the left write to me and scoff and they say, well, the U.S. has broken those rules all the time. And I'm like, yes, I'm not denying that at all. So have many countries. But the point is you don't get rid of the rules because people are breaking them. You must strengthen the rules because people are breaking them, not loosen them. You talk about people on the left saying America breaks it too, but that's the kind of language that a Putin or an Erdogan use also to say, well, you're not so great. Yes, exactly. Don't hold Europe to yourself up to some moral high ground. You're, you do the same thing we do. We just, you know, we're just not called America and we're not a democracy. Well, and, and we certainly could play that out in this discussion. But for Americans who are looking at this moment and saying, you know, well, you know, I just don't like American foreign policy in the past. I don't think people recognize the degree to which it's changed under Biden, but I just don't like it and we should get rid of it. Like, if you think it's bad now, you take away the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. You know, if you think it's bad now, you know, and so therefore people whose human rights are being trampled on have no language or international tribunal to say, hey, we're getting killed over here. You take that away and you take away the United Nations and you take away all the the many partnerships and allyships and even treaties around the world that underpin that order. And, you know, then might makes right again. And this is one of the places where historians will sit here and say, you know, we remember the 19th century. I sometimes feel quite literally that we remember the 19th century, <laughs> where the United States, for example, would look at a dispute between two countries in which one country would invade the other. And they would say, well, let's just wait back here a little bit and see which one looks like it's going to win. And then we'll side with that. It's a whole different way of looking at the world that I think people are not aware could happen and that I do not think is going to end up making us a better globe than we are now, but rather quite a worse one, especially now since one of the huge reasons we put in place these rules was because of nuclear weapons. And when you have people sort of beginning to say now, well, you know, it, it wouldn't be such a bad idea to use tactical nuclear weapons. I'm like, what? Like, listen to yourselves. That's always one that's just like, wait, 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 <laughs> wait, wait, <laughs> what are you saying? But for this next generation, you know, first of all, I don't think they recognize that these are not rules that are written in stone, that they could lose them any time. But I also worry about the fact that for so many years, Republicans demonized any sort of basic regulation or basic social safety as communism or socialism. And, you know, I'm the historian of that. I can tell you how we get to that place. But what I have seen is a number of people younger than me and younger than you, too, saying, well, you know, I actually think that having universal health care is a good thing. And that's socialism and communism. So I guess I'm a socialist and a communist. And I'm like, now, hang on just a minute here. You know, the idea of getting rid of liberal democracy and replacing it in my mind with anything else is an express train to authoritarianism. Sure. Cuba has national health care. Well, and, you know, you look at what happened in Venezuela, for example. And one of the things that I'm trying to do is to protect the concept of liberal democracy and the idea that a rules-based international order and the rule of law in the United States that is characterized by people being treated equally before the law and having a right to a say in their government, both values that are articulated in the Declaration of Independence, by the way, that that matters. And even though people on the left complain about the fact that that 
liberal democracy has, in their opinion, been so steeped in classism or racism or sexism that it is not viable. And even though people on the right say, oh, that liberal-based order, democratic order, is not viable because it stops us from imposing the will, our will, on the majority, it's really incumbent upon people, whether they hail from either the democratic or the Republican side of our political system, to protect democracy, to protect that liberal order. And that's not Just to be clear for your listeners, liberal in this case means the protection of the individual. It does not imply a political party. So I worry in this next generation about the fact that they don't have the language for that. They don't have the tools for that. But to go back to what you were saying, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing in this moment, somebody said, you know, we need a movement and uh, on social media. And I said, aren't we a movement? Because there are so many people from so many different places who are speaking up now to defend democracy, places like the Lincoln Project and people like me, but not just us. There are especially, I think, women of a certain age, generally their children are either leaving or have left home. And they, for the first time in our history, have 20 to 30 years in which they are educated and skilled and they have connections and they have time to devote themselves to, as one person said to me, becoming a good ancestor. And they too are learning the language of democracy and calling for the protection of the rights that are being stripped away from us. And I think that there is in fact a movement around the country and it is including older American women in a way that People have not paid a great deal of attention to. And because that demographic tends to be ignored in our society, I don't think a lot of people are seeing it. And, you know, to me, this is the fascinating story of the post-2015 moment. I would say this is that I think that American women and younger voters saved our bacon in 20 and 22. And I think they had an effect on on these recent off-year elections as well. And I think, you know, I've told this story on the air before. I was on a Zoom with one of the young women that works for us the morning that the Dobbs decision came down. And again, my take being a middle-aged white guy was she went to bed Thursday night, one of the freest humans, humanity, the globe has ever known in 50,000 years and woke up on Friday and she wasn't. And I can never experience that, but I can understand the visceral nature of that. Right. And I think you're still seeing that. Let me ask about you. You've mentioned language a couple of times. So I want to talk about this, but I also want to mix it with your vocation, which is why is it that Americans are so bad at history? Is it just the educational system? Is it that now in the time of, quote unquote, do your own research, you can believe whatever it is you want to believe? I'm an amateur historian at best, Heather, but like I don't understand how so many millions and millions of Americans can be either blind or ignorant to our own history, certainly, but also the history of the kind of thing we're seeing now, because I know you do, too. Like we spend a hell of a a lot of time explaining what's going on and the historical aspects of it, which, again, you know, history may rhyme, it may echo, doesn't necessarily repeat itself. So why are we so ignorant of the past? So I'm going to give you a general answer and then a slightly more specific one. I hear all the time, you know, why did nobody teach me this? And my answer is almost always, they probably did. But I firmly believe, and I do this obviously for a living, that you have to have enough experience in life to understand history. And, you know, I I describe it as a light bright, you know, that that child's toy. If you put in one or two lights, you don't know what the picture is. But the more lights that go in, 
the more you can see the picture. So I'm going to tell a story on myself here and explain what I mean. When I was in college, in college, mind you, at Harvard University, and I'd gone to a very, very good high school, I had an entire course on the French Revolution. We read 11 books on the French Revolution, and I could answer any questions you wanted about the French Revolution. I was in graduate school, again at Harvard, before I realized that the French Revolution came after the American Revolution. Like it's a no-brainer, right? Except somehow I didn't have that piece because I didn't have the experience. I hadn't read enough. I didn't know enough. So I think, first of all, history is something that tends to gravitate toward older people. That is, you when you're older, you get to understand it better. But then there was also within the historical profession something that I think did not serve us well. And as a caveat here, I'm one of the people who was in the crosshairs of that and fighting back against it. And that is that Really starting in the 1960s but and in the 1970s, although it's got a much longer backstory than that, the historical profession, and I'm only going to talk about the United States, although the European side of that and the African side of that is actually very interesting, that the historical profession began to turn away from the idea of studying politics and economics and foreign affairs, in part because after World War II and after the colonial movements of the, the decolonial movements of the 1960s and the 1970s, people were like, you know, these guys haven't done us any favors. The politicians and the foreign affairs people who claimed they knew everything and got right, us the best and the brightest. Exactly. And economists, who cares? Right. So they began to study the people and they really brought us an entirely new way of looking at the world through social history. Brilliant stuff. And, you know, we've got I could just sit here and list all these great books. But what it meant was that scholars moved away from studying politics. They moved away from studying economics. They moved away from studying the judiciary. They moved away from studying the levers of power. And the problem with studying social history and the way that it translated to students is that by definition, social history did not tend to tell stories. It tended to look at the way that ordinary people's lives changed or they changed their lives over long periods of time. And it didn't really talk about how you move the levers of power. So what we ended up with was, first of all, people who did not necessarily engage with history. They didn't think it was very interesting, but they also didn't recognize the major ways in which politics, for example, really matter to their lives. So now we're seeing a huge effort to do a catch up and for people to explain what, you know, the 14th Amendment meant and, you know, what the Electoral College is and all that. But for a long time, if you taught that, and I did, and so I'm speaking from experience here, people assumed you were on the political right because you were engaging with questions that, for the most part, academics seem to have left in the dust. And there was a reason that Joanne Freeman and I, who's a professor at Yale, were the two who ended up doing what was essentially a, a narrative history podcast. And that's because we were, were almost exactly the same age for all that I used to tease her about how much older she was than me. She's older than me by, you know, like a minute and a half. Um, we were two of the very, very few professors at all, but certainly female professors who studied Congress and politics and economics and to some degree foreign affairs. So um, so I think part of it is the history profession walked away from the from the histories that told stories so people could engage, but they also walked away from really studying the levers of power. So people thought that history didn't matter that much, that it belonged to, you know, these really important stories and studies of, you know, the gay experience in New York, for example, is this brilliant, brilliant book. 
But you know, if you're somebody who's just trying to figure out who to vote for on the school committee, maybe that seems like it didn't matter so much. And so one of the things we're seeing now, as I say, is this big catch up to try and get people to understand just what politics is and how the economy operates, why foreign affairs matter, and you know that all this is not some esoteric or unimportant set of dates. It's actually about your life and the choices that you're making about the way society works. So let me ask you this. Is it fair to say that it could be very difficult to explain to so many people why democracy matters if we've spent so little time explaining to them why it matters? Well, yes. I mean, we certainly lost and we did this quite deliberately after 1960. What happened was that after World War II, both parties kept talking at great length about the importance of democracy, the importance of the rules-based international order, NATO, you know, all of the pieces that I write about so much now, you know, when we get the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, for example, you know, there's, there's Which just headline had its stories. anniversary. 75th, yeah. With, you know, there's headline stories. And nowadays, most people don't even know it existed. And in part, that was because in 1960, there's a very famous article written by a political scientist who says, you know, stop talking about these general large principles. So we all agree. There's no point in talking about them anymore. If you're going to build political coalitions, what you really need to do is focus on what your candidates will do for certain people in that coalition and thereby get them to back you because there's no point in talking about big issues anymore because we all agree. Well, of course, that worked really effectively for Richard Nixon in 1968. That's when we get the the book called the permanent Republican majority. And he talks about right. the Southern strategy. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And so and the Democrats follow suit. So we end up after 1968 with politics that are coalition based. You know, I'm going to get this for you. These are the issues that you transactional. Care about. Yes. It becomes a transaction. Yes. And so one of the things that I think we're seeing all around us now is people really waking up to the fact that their vote matters for something bigger to them. And this goes back into what I was talking about earlier with narrative and the way we frame voting and the way we frame why democracy matters. And they want to know why it matters. They want to know that they're voting for democracy instead of authoritarianism. They want to know how those systems work. So is it going to be a hard lift? You know, we are, have been steeped in the idea that these things always exist. It has been my observation that seeing them ripped away, primarily seeing the right to abortion ripped away, has brought home to people far more than abortion rights as if that weren't big enough. It's brought home the idea that, in fact, we could lose everything. And people seem to me to be extraordinarily eager to get up to speed really quickly. So if you look at the questions that I get, you know, I'm not no longer getting questions like, what is the Electoral College? I'm getting questions like, if the Supreme Court decides that it is going to take up this case and there isn't a recusal over here, then what will that matter down the way here? Can there be an appeal? You know, these incredibly complicated, detailed questions about the way things work. And I think that's because now people no longer take for granted that they will continue to enjoy the same kind of rights that they have for the past 75 years. Well, and there's I don't know who said it, but there's that trope, right, that um, you can ignore politics, but politics never ignores you. That's right. And now we know it. So let's talk a little bit about that. In you know, we're going into 2024. Take or leave what you believe about public opinion surveys. I can leave a lot of it. But now you have a situation where we have a rematch. We will likely have a rematch of the two candidates from 2020. You know, one President Biden, who, you know, look, I'm not a Republican anymore, but I'm not a Democrat either. But I think all things considered, probably hues a heck of a lot more to my political 
basis and foreign policy perspective, right? Um, I think he's much more Kennedy-esque in his foreign policy than anything else. And I think he's done a good job, you know, all things considered. And the things he's gotten done, he needed Republican votes for. And I think he's been, all things considered, a steady hand on the tiller. And then you have the alternative, which to me is no alternative. Again, he was a disaster as president. You know, we tend to like oh, some of my friends will say, oh, well, you know, his presidency wasn't that bad. I'm like, it was. And just look at 2020. Right. I mean, and, and as I said before in a previous episode, Heather, you don't elect presidents for the good days. You elect them for the bad days. With Donald Trump, it's all bad days. Yes. And I wish we had more time to talk about foreign policy because I'm struck by your comment that Biden is more Kennedy because I actually see him as being later than Kennedy, really picking up on Jimmy Carter's foreign policy. But, you know, obviously we don't have time to go into that now. And I would love to because I'm fascinated by this. But the idea right now, I think, is exactly as you say, that voting for Trump is not an option. It's just not an option if you're trying to protect American democracy. But Biden is also quite clear that he is not simply a holding action. He is really trying both to model and to bring back the American polity before the rise of Reagan and before the Republican Party doubled down on the idea of a president who responds only to his own constituencies. You know, and, he, and Biden talks about this all the time when he goes out and he makes sure that red states get, for example, chips and science money or bipartisan infrastructure money. And in fact, we know that the Republican states, Republican dominated states have benefited more from the Chips and Science Act than Democrat dominated states have, which is, again, fascinating. You can't imagine Trump doing that. I'm not sure quite what you're asking. It seems almost as if you're asking, why are people still sticking with Trump? All right, I'll make it easy for you. Why are people still sticking with Trump? <laughs> well, because I think partly they are not paying attention. Now, will that change going forward? Perhaps. I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting is the degree to which the Trump camp has begun to push back against accusations that he is going to become a dictator. Of course, he has said that. They've made that extremely clear. And I think they're wearing that as a sign of pride because I think that that's exactly what his base, especially his evangelical base, wants. They want someone to tear up the Constitution and to hammer through their theocratic vision of the United States. But it's clear I think that there is no way that Trump can win in 2024, certainly in a free and fair vote, he wouldn't. But even with the ways in which the current day Republicans have sewn up that vote, um, he's got to bring at least some new voters to the coalition or make sure that Democratic voters can't make it to the polls. And so you're seeing these attacks across the country on young voters, for example. All kinds of uh, Republican-dominated states are trying to keep young voters from turning out at the polls. And certainly the the other attacks on black voters, for example, and, and currently the many attacks on the Voting Rights Act across the country, the attempt to make sure that Democrats simply can't have their votes counted. That's a really big deal. And partly I don't understand why we're not in the streets protesting that, by the way. But the fact that even though that they are trying to game the system that way, they are starting to recognize that those claims that he's going to become a dictator, his own claims, by the way, are off-putting to the suburban voters that they need. They desperately need the female suburban voters who are already on the ropes with because of the abortion issue. And I think one of the things that you're seeing among the, the Republicans right now, and I think this is across the board, by the way, not just among the Trumpers, is the recognition that they are really in desperate straits, hence the real push to insist that immigration is this national crisis, even though they themselves have refused to solve it for a very long time because they like that issue. The idea now that we should cut aid to Ukraine 
because we have this extraordinary crisis on our border, is, I think, an attempt to try and give many more teeth to the immigration issue with the idea that they can undercut the abortion issue, especially in states like Texas. So why aren't Trump voters turning against him? I think partly because they're not paying attention and there is concern among the Republicans that they might start to pay attention. But I think also because he, he, what he did so effectively was he took that Republican rhetoric, those words that made people vote Republican, and he took the people who had internalized those words and he turned them into a movement. And there's a way that you turn rhetoric into a movement. And he employed the way that neo-Nazis used it in the United States in the 1930s. And they did so very effectively. And that is that you get people to bond over essentially gang activity. And of course, Trump wasn't the only one who'd done this. We'd had the militia movements in the American West for, you know, really since the 2000s and, and elsewhere, but they really were characterized by the American West, largely actually on the heels of Red Dawn. Um, but that's a different story. He took those people and he said he was on their side after the, the riot in Charlottesville, the Unite the Right riot in Charlottesville in 2017. And he urged them to continue assaulting the foundations of American democracy, the judicial system, state governments like Gretchen Whitmer's in Michigan, for example. And when you when you have that gang activity and you manage to make people feel an identity with the other people in their gangs, even if it's only over protesting the fixing of potholes in your town, although, mind you, that rarely turns out right wing gangs. What happens is that they then become very susceptible to embracing a strong man in part because they recognize they've already begun to go up against the legal system and a strong man will protect them, but in part because they really like the idea that they're powerful and they can change the world essentially by swinging a club. Right. They're the in-group. That's right. They're the in-group and they're the in-group with power. And so those people are never going to be de-radicalized as long as Trump is on the stage. The best that we will ever be able to hope for with those people, I think, is as Biden says, they'll go back under their rocks. Those people have always existed. They always will exist. I'll be honest. I know some of them, right? And they're never going to go away, but they can cease to become political actors if we reinforce the rule of law. And if, as I say, we make it no longer cool to be a member of these militias. I mean, one of the things that I notice that has gotten very little play, although there was an article about it in The Atlantic, is that Eamon Bundy has disappeared. And that, you know, he was really the poster child for that kind of radicalization. And he has disappeared because the legal system caught up with him because he had attacked a hospital. And the hospital took the bit in its teeth and have continued to insist upon him actually paying them the damages that they were awarded. And he has now uh, disappeared. And that strikes me. I mean, he's, his opinion has not changed. Uh, I would lay money, but he is no longer able to be a viable political actor because the collective American will as expressed through the judicial system is forcing him to behave in social ways as opposed to the antisocial ways in which he was acting. And so far, it seems to have worked. Well, and as we start to wrap up here, isn't that the thing that we have to hope for, we have to work for, is a lot of this doesn't work, whether or not it's the Eamon Bundys or the Donald Trumps of the world, when it comes into contact with reality. Only if you allow it to exist in the nearly hermetically sealed bubble in which Trump has operated most of his life. And he's always told us who and what he is, right? He's never been a secret about it. But when he's come into contact with reality, I think you could see how he reacted to COVID, 
I think you could see how he reacted, obviously, after he lost the 2020 election, how he's going to react now that he's going to you know, face federal criminal charges here in March, if all things go according to plan, is once reality intercedes with the fiction or the rhetoric or the movement, as you've talked about, things start to break apart in a hurry. But if you allow them to operate in their unreality, for lack of a better way to put it, Heather, then they can begin to create a reality not only for themselves, but for us too. Well, yes, I think that's exactly right. And of course, that is a political strategy that's called virtual politics or political technology. And it's a political theory that has been strategized primarily in Russia, although we have seen signs of it in the United States as far back as the 1970s. And that is that you can undermine democracy not solely by through violence or by feeding people deliberate state propaganda, but rather by creating a false reality through a number of techniques, but primarily through disinformation so that they believe things that are not true. And as you're outlining the things that you just mentioned, COVID, for example, and Donald Trump's legal cases, and certainly the events of January 6, 2021, what you see on the, on the side of the Trump believers is a re- imagining what happened in those cases so that they are denying reality in favor of their favorite image of their savior, Donald Trump. And the cutting into that false reality for them will never happen. But, you know, it's really interesting. I've studied this concept of virtual politics or political technology fairly deeply now. And there are a lot of theories about how one does that, how you create a false reality so that people are willing to give up their democracy. But what I haven't seen In the theories, I've certainly talked to people about it who have experience in a number of fields, is when people have used a certain set of levers against a population to destabilize their democratic government. That is disinformation. That is throwing so much crap at the zone, you can no longer tell what's up and what's down. And so you back away from the fight or you turn to a strong man. That is running fake candidates, candidates who switch parties or have false names that look like your opponent's candidates so that that vote is split. It also includes blackmail, by the way, which we never talk about in the United States, but I have a hard time believing it's not being used simply because it's one of the five techniques one uses in virtual politics. But what they don't study is what happens when people figure out that that's what's been imposed on them. So you look, for example, at Brexit, which was kind of the trial run for the the 2016 election, right? If you look now, the people who voted for Brexit overwhelmingly now say it was a terrible idea. And similarly, the 2016 election in the United States, I think most Americans now would say, crap, we did not know what was hitting us, right? And we want to make sure that doesn't happen again. But what happens? Do they just say, oh, man, that was bad? Or do they take those same tools and use them to reestablish democracy? And that's one of the things that I see around us now is the fact that, for example, People like me and people who are working outside the legacy media and the mainstream media have put such pressure on the mainstream media that in 2016 and even to some degree in the midterm elections since then and in the 2020 election really put their fingers on the scale for oligarchy, for authoritarianism and for Donald Trump are starting now to step up and say, oh, wait a minute, actually, there's a real problem here. And I wonder if we are seeing that next phase of virtual politics, which is people have cottoned on to the fact that it has destroyed their democracy and they're using those same tools to take democracy back. Well, no, and I've had several conversations about that same thing. And it's interesting that you have to find 
really open-minded people, Heather, to discuss utilizing those kind of tactics for good instead of ill. And a lot of people are uncomfortable with it because they're like, well, we've never done that before, or isn't that doing what the bad guys do? And I'm like, well, no, because the beauty is like, we have truth and reality <laughs> on our side, right? Just using them in a way that's effective or different or innovative in the context of our politics is not inherently bad. It's just something maybe you haven't done before. Let me add to that. I think one of the reasons that people are uncomfortable with it is because many people who are not accustomed to celebrating American life believe that by talking about the good pieces of the United States, you are somehow denying the bad ones. And it does not have to be that way at all. It is perfectly possible to talk about, for example, the civil rights movement and also to talk about the civil rights movement and to champion those people who managed to bring civil rights to the United States and also recognize that they weren't out there marching, you know, for the good of their health, that they were actually pushing back against real inequities, real inequalities and real prejudice and biases that were keeping them from becoming full citizens of the United States. So I think partly there is a disinclination of people who are accustomed to recognizing the real problems in the United States to use those techniques to say, hey, wait a minute, democracy is really pretty great because they're afraid that they'll lose that other story. And it does not have to be that way. No. As a historian, I don't want to say you're going to write both sides of a history, but you're, you know, unless it's a specific thing, you're likely to write it holistically, right? That's the way you do it. Okay. Let me ask one last question Do you ever sleep? I do not sleep enough, but here's the answer to that, and that is that I have been extraordinarily well-trained by people who put a lot of effort into me, and I care very deeply about American democracy because I believe ultimately in the project of human self-determination. That is, I believe it is a humanistic concern for us to try to achieve the ability to design our own destinies, and American democracy, I think, although I it has never been pure, it will never be finished, is the form of government most likely to make that happen. And so I am using my skill that I got thanks to so many people who trained me and you know, so many people who put so much work into me to try and protect American democracy the same way that, you know, the guys sitting on the wall behind you did. You know, not that I'm anything like Lincoln, but an awful lot of people in our history have put everything on the line, including their lives, to protect American democracy. And so if that means that I get less sleep than I would like and that I don't get to write the book I want to write right now, it seems to me to be quite a small price to pay. And I have to say, one of the, the things that I cared about most was somebody who is in the armed services wrote to me and said, you know, we consider you a colleague. And, you know, is there higher praise than that? Right. Let me I said it was going to be the last question I do have about your Substack: letters from an American. Is that a play on a letter to an American? No. OK. No, it is a play on two things. It's a play on letters from an American farmer which was the first major document in the United States in which an immigrant to this country said, what is this American, this new man? Because nobody knew what it would mean for people to, to live in a democracy. And it's a play on Alistair Cook's Letters from America, because once a week he would do a snapshot of the United States. 
And it could be a tattoo artist, it could be the president, it could be anything, and it would be a picture of the United States. And Letters from an American is designed each day to be a snapshot of what the country looked like on that particular day. My cutoff is midnight Eastern time. No, I know because I live in the mountain time zone and I get it late where I live. So, Heather Cox Richardson, before we let you go, we can find your Substack Letters from an American. Where else can we find your work? Well, I'm also on Facebook because that's where so many people are. I want to emphasize that Letters from an American is free. It is possible to pay for it, but most people do not. And otherwise, I'm on as many social media channels as I have been able to pick up lately, and I will be on more. I'm not hard to find. All right. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen, on threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. I now have a Substack. not anything compared to yours, Heather. It's called The Homefront. I hope everyone will check it out. Heather Cox Richardson, thank you so much for joining me. This was fascinating, and I hope you'll come back sometime early next year. I'd love to. It's been a real pleasure. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.